Salutation, I'm Junior Francis, uh, host and uh, I guess host, yeah, and Eric Kohler is the producer of the uh, History of Alaska one-on-one -on -one session. This is the 12th episode and I want to acknowledge my good friend Eric Kohler from the very onset because sometimes I'm inclined not to remember to thank Eric who is the brainchild behind this. Tonight's guest is bassist, band leader, writer, producer, composer, music authority, Joey Altruda of the fame Jump With Joey. I kid you not, the man wears multi- He's brilliant, he's dynamic, he's done everything. Over the years, he has worked with some of the biggest names in not just reggae, scare and rocksteady, but the world music, world beat music. For instance, he has had the opportunity to work with Katzendam, which is a dream that a lot of us have held but just not able to accomplish his work with founding member of this catalytes world famous Roland Alfonso Joy name them Joy Altruda has worked with them so right now I'm anticipating his arrival he'll be breaking through uh, any moment now but let me give this is a teaser I, I, I'm only sharing this with you our next three guests are really magnificent on Sunday April the 11th Rhoda, the car of the body snatchers at a special Los Angeles time, 1 p.m. Because she's in the United Kingdom. I, I kid you not. We've lined up the King of Scare, Derek Morgan, for Sunday, April the 25th. The King of Scare, the real king. The man who was responsible for auditioning Bob Marley, Desmond Decker, Tutsuna Fabulous Matters, and the list is endless. And I dare not leave out a good friend of mine, Vernon Maytone, the musical migrant who now lives in Montreal, Canada. So that's the lineup for the next couple of weeks. It's extensive and it's massive. I think Joy is about to join us. Joy is about to join us. So as I was saying before, the lineup for the next couple of weeks, extensive. Uh, and we cannot mention these people by first name. Just say Rhoda. People, people know you're talking about uh, the body snatchers. King of Ska, you needn't say Derek Morgan. People know exactly who he is. Vernon Maytowns, you know, Money Worries. Uh, song appeared on one of Reagan's biggest selling soundtrack, uh, Rockers. So we'll be talking to him. He lives in Montreal, Canada. And he's been staying very, 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 very busy. Joy. Hey. Yes, sir. I tried to uh, kill time uh, while we wait for you. Thanks for rejoining Oops, us. We were here having earlier little, on. I, I was having a little bit of technical difficulties, but I think I'm okay now. I, I see a lot of people's names over my face. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> good evening, everyone. Yeah, man. Good evening. Uh, good night, as the case may be. In some places, this morning. Yes. Yes, sir. So uh, you're doing okay. Chris Murray, I see you too. All right, yeah, Chris Murray. Uh -huh. Ken, Ken Stewart. Wow. Name them. These are big names, man. These are all your friends from eternity. People you have worked with over the years. All the band members coming as the audience. Ah. <laughs> Usually we're always on other gigs and we can't do it. Yes. <laughs> right. So uh, let's get down to business, eh? Down to and, business. You know, as we go along, you can thank some of your friends. Uh, no objection. So tell us about your career and when you got started, Joey. When I got started in playing music? Uh, 
Yeah, maybe since we're talking about music, right. hey, you've you done many music. other things, but let's uh, stay with music for now. <laughs> well, you I did mean, some acting as well, didn't you? Do some acting, appearing in a couple of movies? Yes, well, you know. I well, let's talk about all of it, so I don't think we should leave you know, anything after all. It's I, not a secret. Music is in my blood. It's, it's obvious, right? And uh, I first started playing music when I was four years old. I'm in my 53rd year of making music. Wow. I played all kinds of instruments as a small child because we mm -hmm. had lots of instruments around our house. So, mm -hmm. you know, I would just play around with instruments, have fun with instruments. I, I could play simple things by ear. You know, I had a natural tendency to hear music and be able to play it by ear. And, you know, later, like most people that play music, a lot, a lot of times it just starts by playing by ear, which is very important. And, uh, you know, I never really got that serious about studying, uh, you know, the architecture of music till much, much later. You know, I grew up collecting records. A lot of records would be given to me by people, family members. You know how that is. You hand me down records from your older siblings. And I don't know about or, that. I don't know yeah, about those my, things. Yeah, my, <laughs> yeah, my, 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 uh, my mother used to make ends meet by buying clothing for us at thrift shops. And it was not a popular thing at that time. It was really not cool, uh, you know. And But she would bring me to the thrift shops and I would go through records. And I would often guess <laughs> at whatever it was because of the design of the cover or the design of the record label. And a lot of times it just wasn't that interesting or good, what music didn't resonate with me, or it was just a pure dud, but once in a while I would find something really, really cool, like uh, Sunshine of Your Love 45 by by Cream when I was like eight years old, I'm like, what's that? Uh, you know, it was so powerful. I had a lot of different diverse music in my home. I had, my parents uh, were of the age of, they grew up in the depression and they were teenagers in the forties during World War II and such. So we had big band swing music in there. My father listened to classical radio every night. My, my father and mother are both of Italian descent and my dad's best friend Otto was German. And so they liked a lot of music from old, <clears throat> old, the old world Europe of like waltzes and polkas and folk music. And they used to play mandolins and guitars and accordions and things together. And I used to play music with them when I was a small child. And so I had all that. Plus like him, my, my sister showed me Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention when I was four years old, when they put out their first album. Uh, I, of course, the Beatles were big. You know, uh, Eddie Cochran, I found Eddie Cochran's music through a stack of records my grandfather found on the, like uh, sitting on the top of a garbage can. My mom found a couple Cal Jader records when I was six years old, which was big. Like uh, it later on, when I was about 14, I actually had the ears to understand, like hear it and like connect with it, you know? All this stuff was like my early, my early days of what was around me, what formed my musical, uh, I guess, eclectic or assorted interest in lots of types of, of music and influences. Mm -hmm. Right. And so in that, you know, I started playing guitar pretty much all the time when I was about eight. And I picked up the bass when I was about 18. And uh, at that time, rockabilly was a big thing. It was, I mean, in the underground post-punk 
LA underground, uh, you know, arena, if you will. And so uh, there were very few people that could play rockabilly bass then. And so I was one of the first people in LA to be doing that. Um, I loved the music of Sun Records. We had old Johnny Cash records when I was a small kid. We had like such a diverse thing. Plus my parents also had their old 78s from when they were young people in the 40s. And I was fascinated by them because it was like time travel. And the, so the records, they, they spun 78 RPMs, you know, and it was such a strange kind of surreal time travel for me when they would bring them out and play them. And I started collecting these. And so, you know, my, my story really goes from like listening to a lot of pop and rock and whatever kind of jazz stuff when I was like of six to 12, I loved Nat King Cole by the way, just loved him. It moved from that to like, when I was about 13, I started listening to jazz, like post-war jazz, because I had loved Benny Goodman, Sextet with Charlie Christian, small group swing music. But when I first heard like Charlie Parker and Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers when I was 14, uh, wow, I mean, that was a game changer. Lee Morgan, John Coltrane, they were like big game changers for me. At the same exact time, I was hearing for the first time, uh, well, uh, uh, Joao Gilberto uh, on the radio. And he had a new album out called Amoroso. And he sang Besame Mucho. And I'd never heard that song before. And it sounded like he did such an original treatment of it with Klaus Ogerman writing the string arrangement. It sounded like it was his own song. That's how much he personalized that song. And I, I was obsessed with him. The, I found that record and the Getz Gilberto record. When I was 15, I punk music found its way to us in 1978, a year after it found its way from England to New York with Sex Pistols and The Clash and these things. And I had a few friends that were, it was dangerous to be a punk in high school in that year. You know, it was dangerous. People would pick fights with you because they were so angered by it, you know? And so I, I loved the spirit of the rebellion of it, the spirit of how it harkened back to like original rock and roll from the 50s. You know, I had always loved oldies, of course, 50s oldies and rock and roll, Chuck Berry and American Graffiti soundtrack. All of this was like stirring in me. And a key thing that happened to me was that <clears throat> I lived in the beach community of Sunset Beach, California, right borderline of Huntington Beach, okay? And it, in recent years, it got franchised to be a part of Huntington Beach, but anyways, I had a neighbor named Bobby Redfield, who was a jazz guitarist. He had been with the Righteous Brothers. He played on You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Big you time. know, he was in his 40s when I met him, his early 40s. But he had been Cal Jader's guitar player in about 1974, 75, 76, when Claire Fisher was on the piano there. And Poncho Sanchez was a young man in the band, hadn't started his band yet. Bobby had a weekly gig at the local bar where my sister would hang out. And 
you know, she knew him and all the guys in the band were Poncho Sanchez, Ramon and Tony Banda, the Banda brothers, Sal Cracchiolo on the trumpet, um, and a few other guys there who, it was actually the Banda brothers band that Bobby would borrow for the gig. You know, Poncho was in the band. It, was, it wasn't Poncho's band, but what happened was like a few years later, Poncho uh, got a record deal and he brought those guys into being the Poncho Sanchez band, which went to uh, do 20 albums, 20 years of world tours with guests like Dizzy Gillespie, Jimmy Smith, Stanley Turrentine, you know, all kinds of incredible albums and things. So Ramon Banda, uh, he, he really mentored me early on in how to understand Latin rhythms and make tapes for me of Afro-Cuban records and giving me some of the real uh, rudiments and like uh, foundational artists I should look at and really check out. And it was a great fortune because I would go into that bar and I'd kind of hide in the corner because I was only 15, <laughs> 16 until the bartender would see me and, and throw me out. But But the thing was like, it had these like bay windows that opened up out on the Pacific Coast Highway. It's right across the street from Sam's Seafood, what was called, uh, what's the place where Fully Fullwood plays every Sunday? Uh, Don the Beachcomber. Don the Beachcomber was called Sam's Seafood. And right across the street from that is a bar called Turks that opened in 1952. That's the bar that I would get kicked out of. It has these double windows, a whole a look, like a whole row of them looking out on the PCH. And so, and the windows would be open. So I would just hang out sitting on the railing there, listening to the band on the other side of the window. They were set up right there. And so I would still hear the music, but they'd come out on their breaks and hang out. They would, they would go to my sister's house and, and party afterwards. And, you know, uh, sometimes I would go over there in the morning uh, on my way to school and they'd still be up. You know, <laughs> it was kind of crazy, but uh, it was my schooling. And so, you know, right around 17, 18 years old, I had uh, music coming to me that was Latin jazz. And I heard the specials album for the first time when I was 17, plus all the rockabilly revival bands and people showing me obscure and rare rockabilly records from the 50s, all of it was happening for me at the same time. And so, you know, uh, I wanted to play all of it. I so had a burning how desire did the Jamaican to play all connection, how, when were you introduced to Jamaica, uh, Jamaican music? Not the two tones, but from the I, epicenter. I would say, So that you know, perhaps scare rock steady on about, on yeah, about that time you know, when you were first I, introduced? I would say uh, it, about 82 initially, Mm -hmm. But really, in 1983, officially, because, mm -hmm. you know, I had heard, uh, like I said, specials. I had no context of what the original ska was. I see, listened to the specials with Rico. I didn't know what he, he had a last name. I just thought he was like <laughs> Pri Prince or Madonna. They don't, Elvis, they don't have to have a last name. Yeah, they're, so they're larger than Profound, life. you know. Yeah, larger than and, life. Uh, I had no idea that, you know, I wouldn't know for years later that Rico played the trombone on the first recording of A Message to You, Rudy, by Daddy mm -hmm. Livingstone, for and example. And the remake as well. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. That's the mm -hmm. first right, right. song on the first. Mm -hmm. 
I want to, I want to know more about that, you know? So I had been in a band called Tupelo Chain Sex from 81 to 88, seven years in a band that was an outgrowth of, it was post-punk LA band. Mm. And right at the same time, and we played all kinds of weird experimental and fun music and people would liken us to like the Bonzo Dog Band because we would just mash up all kinds of absurd references and different kinds of music, like just mashed up and very theatrical and fun. Uh, we had uh, Don Sugarcane Harris from, and Don and Dewey were in the band, you know, uh, Sugarcane was, had been with Frank Zappa and John Mayall, which see, leads me back to Gaz Mayall and Jason Mayall, the sons of, uh, John Mayall. So at that point, uh, Fishbone was a new band. And we, we would do a lot of gigs together, hang out a lot together. Uh, they cite Tupelo Chainsex as being a, a very deep influence on them for all of the like intricate arrangements and diverse styles thrown all together and things. Uh, they were just in the like late teens. I think Fish was still in high school. Um, Chili Peppers at the same time, we were, we all ran together. And it was a time when uh, punk had been on the scene in LA for three or four years. So now it blew up into this uh, complete freedom of expression and trying anything you wanted. And that's what we were part of. And, you know, and we, what time period again for reference? 81, the band started, and we did four albums and toured the U.S. and Canada extensively till about 87. I left the band in 88. Uh, I was with, with it for seven years. In that time, Jason Mayall lived in L.A. Uh, he and the singer of our band and Willie McNeil of Jump With Joey, they all worked at Flip Vintage Clothing on Melrose. Okay, this is all tying in because what happened was Tupelo Chainsex did not have a drummer for the first year. I was playing a slap bass and it was just that was the percussive sound of the band. And then Jason Mayall brought Willie McNeil into the band as he also brought in Sugarcane Harris because he knew him because of John Mayall. Uh, and then what happened was my girlfriend at the time uh, became roommates with Jason Mayall in 1983. And so he, because he's British, he was sitting me down and playing me the Studio One records and, uh, you know, Black Uhuru with Michael Rose and the deep dub and things for the first time. And he said, you need to go learn how to skank the guitar. Like, take these records, I'm gonna make you a tape. You go home and you learn how to skank the guitar and, you know, uh, learn how, to, how, how the bass lines work. You know, that's that's really where it all began. And he would wow. go visiting Ish. in England to visit back home for his family and things. And he would come home with tapes that Gaz was making, mixtapes of all those rare early Jamaican records that he was buying like a stack for five pounds at Portobello Road Market, you mm -hmm. know. But be, since like 1976, he was buying those because they were kind of considered junk. They were only like 12, 13 year old records. They were outmoded in that time period by the people that were selling all their just excess junk at the flea market. So he was finding all of this stuff, making these, the whole series of mixtapes that were, you know, they're quite famous now. 
And so uh, it was before he started the Trojans, but he had had his his club Gaz's Rock and Blues in Soho since 1980, I believe. He's gone 40 years now, you know. <laughs> yeah, Ted Morris, Two-Tone Ted loves Gaz's, Gaz's mixtapes. Yep, I mean, they're phenomenal. And it was at a time when, you know, we still didn't have much at all for reissue records available to us mm -hmm. of early Jamaican music. Right, uh, right. They weren't really distributed to us. Uh, you might find something at Rhino Records in West Hollywood because they specialized in eclectic music. But it wasn't until about the late 80s that places like Big Bleaker Bob's and Aaron's on Melrose began carrying a short selection of Studio One reissues. Mm -hmm. And so whatever they had, you know, you bought. And you hoped that something you didn't have would come next month from, from Brooklyn, that from Sir Coxon, you know. And so uh, as I was doing all of this, I had no, like I could never imagine in my wildest dreams that, you know, uh, flashing forward to 1990, that <clears throat> Roland Alfonso from these records would be playing in my band. Like, are you joking me? Or that we would go on to, you know, have uh, do what we did and have the honor of working with such great artists of like Ernest Wranglin and Rico, becoming not just working with them, becoming really dear friends with them, you know, uh, working with people like Laurel Aiken. You know, I mean, it's just a it's just a great gift to me. You know, I I feel so. If we move from the generality to be more specific, how did you uh, make contact with say Cox and Dad as a for instance? Well, this is a great story because you know Roland Alfonso would come to play with Jump with Joey because a promoter brought him out and mm -hmm. played with us, and you know it was love at first sight. For and what year was that, sir? In 1990, and so mm -hmm. I went out to uh, when we made our second album i brought a, a a reel of tape under my arm out to brooklyn to uh, have roland uh, record a couple sax solos on it was the generations united album and you know we went to the studio that afternoon and went to brooklyn we went to a recording studio he, he put his parts down and we were in a taxi afterwards and we're talking and I said whatever became of Coxon Dodd thinking like he'd been long gone by that time or something because no one mentions him there it was no internet everybody remember this this was like you know information was handed to you by oral history but mm -hmm. a person like Roger Steffens if you knew a guy like Roger Steffens he could tell you mm -hmm. things but very few people could tell you things about this type of stuff or other eclectic right. music, right? Mm -hmm. So Roland said, oh, he's over there. He's in Brooklyn, man. He's New York. He's, he's behind, he's, he's in the studio behind the record shop. I said, what studio? Because I'd been, I'd been going to that music city, Coxon's Music City in Brooklyn since 1990 or so, buying records. And I had no idea that there was this recording studio behind the storefront. And I had no idea that the ladies that always waited on me at the store was, was his wife. Norma Dodd, yes, and, and uh, his daughter. 
uh, I, I can't remember her name right off the top of my head, but you know, longtime friends. Uh, there's too much going on in my head right now, but I mean, Carol Dodd, there you go. But I mean, uh, one day I was there, uh, he brought me over to the studio. He, Roland brought me there and we <clears throat> met Coxon and we played him the, the rough mix cassette of what we had just recorded. And there became our friendship that lasted all the way till Coxon Dodd passed away, you know. And I do remember one day I was over at Studio One and I, I said, you know, there's this Get Ready Rock Steady album on Studio One with the girl dancing, several images of the, the girl wearing like a matching top and uh, pants, okay? And I said to, to uh, you know, Norma Dada, this person really resembles you. And she said, oh, that's my sister. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I would go in there, I would meet someone like Willie Williams or <clears throat> Glenn Adams. I mean, it was phenomenal, uh, really. And uh, Sir Coxon came out to LA. The one and only time he came out was 93 and co-produced Jump With Joey with Roland Alfonso, Strictly For You, Volume 2, uh, CD. And uh, it was phenomenal, just such an incredible experience for that mm -hmm. to happen. And we right. did shows and we did an actual sound system show at this bookshop, coffee shop that was called Big and Tall, where I had a, like a consignment record bin. Uh, we did a DJ night up in upstairs and uh, Sir Coxon, I mean, he was there signing autographs and so Joe, Joe Higgs came there that night. Uh, but Roland played the saxophone with the sound system of the instrumental versions like he used to do at Forrester's Hall. I mean, it was just a grand time and, you know, uh, Coxon. So uh, what, did, what was Coxon's role? You said he produced. Did he, he did the actual mixing? No, we had, we had proper engineers for that. He, he, was the, he was the second set of ears, you know. I see. You know, we would confer, we both produced. And so like we would bounce ideas back and forth. Like, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And like, oh, you know what you should put in there, Joey? You should, you should put a, a Coke bottle like the percussion on some of the old records. Or you should do some of the chippy chip chip things <laughs> like, you know, cuttings uh, as, uh, you know, the, the early, early guys. I'm trying to think of the guy that's on the Scatolites records that's, that did that, but I, I'm blanking on his name again, but, you know, uh, he showed me like, you always want to blend the guitar and the piano skank together yes. in the mix. Mm, so there's that a unity of marriage. Skank, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So not right. long after that, he invited me to go visit him in, in Kingston. Mm -hmm. And I spent a week over there at Studio One and I met everybody, like anybody who was still around. There's some name dropping, man. Uh, well, my my main guide while I was there was uh, was the, the ugly one, um, King Stitch. King Stitch, and like every day I would hang out with him and Count Machuki. Mm. So they were the very first two men who ever spoke on a mic while a record was playing. Like yes. they were my daily friends, and then of course wow. like well, there were people like Carl Dawkins, uh, uh, Flop. Uh, Baga, the bass player, mm -hmm. uh, Ernest Wilson, I met Darren Harriet, uh, Jaw Jerry, uh, Jaw Jerry Haynes, uh, Roy, uh, what's the harmonica player's name, Roy? Roy Richards. Uh, huh? Roy Richards. Roy Richards. I mean, 
Oh, uh, Salas. Mm. Uh, you know, of course, I met his mother, uh, Doris Darlington, who he referred to as Miss Darlington, and she always called That's him Mr. Mother. Dodd. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And uh, I got brought over to Orange Street and Prince Buster's record shop and met his mother, who recited over there. <laughs> and I stayed next door to Studio One in the little cottage that Coxon owned, which Dude. years later, I would find out that was where Bob and Rita Marley spent their honeymoon. Oh, so it's amazing. like, it's just like surreal for me, you know, it's just surreal. Just I think it's surreal for most everyone who is listening, you know? Oh yeah, man. And you know, like sitting there in the studio, hanging out while people were tracking new things over classic rhythms and, you know, uh, skinning up a, a spliff on top of the Jackie Mitchell's Hammond organ. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like I'm bragging, but like for me, no, it's like, no, I actually took you know, the name drop I'm sorry, it was just like, whew. no, I actually took the stump name drop in there. <laughs> and of course, like being able to like see the original Ampex tape recorder mm. that he used on all those early things sitting right. there, it wasn't used. I'm like, what are you going to do with that? He's like, I'm going to fix that. You know, he had like the uh, the old upright bass that was belonged to the studio sitting in the corner that was in disrepair. I said like, hey, what are you going to do with that? He said, I'm going to fix that up so you can come back here and play it, Joey. You know, uh, all the all the master tapes of the original things like Wailing Whalers, they were all in that control room, handwritten. I mean, it was surreal, totally surreal, you know? Wow. Yeah. You was... can write multiple books. Have you written any books? I haven't written any books. I've been blogging a lot about my musical trajectory, if you will, like uh, on joeyaltruda.com. You can go to the blogs and there's, you know, I'm, I'm starting to write blogs that are installations focusing on a certain specific genre I've been in. <laughs> in. Like lately it's been Brazilian because I've got something coming up with that. Um, I also keep my trajectory in Afro-Cuban music because I have a big project coming out later this year in that department, but not yet Jamaican music. When I, you know, I've been offered to write a book for a person who's a longtime friend of mine. Her name is Iris Berry, and she owns a publishing company called Punk Hostage Press. And Punk Hostage Press is uh, it's a publishing company that publishes books by people that were in punk bands. So it's like memoirs and all their memories of mm -hmm. those days. So she said, hey, you should write a book, Joey. So what I'm thinking about uh, doing is a series of Facebook lives, just talking and telling the stories one by one, then sending them to a transcription service and then taking the materials and editing it all into it put it all together frankly i see i see multiple books i see several books joy but while while you catch your breath let me one at a time please me, i see multiple books <laughs> but let me take a quick moment to remind our viewers that i'm in conversation the 12th episode uh, of the history of elaskia one-on-one -on -one session and tonight's guest is bassist, band leader, writer, producer, composer, DJ, music authority. Not any authority that, you know, the authority send people to war. Enthusiast. We're not talking about that. that would, uh, so we've been very specific you now. Music authority. Uh, Joey Altruda. 
Thank you. I, yes, sir. Uh -huh. Right, because I think you were confusing authority with authority. No, sir. <laughs> no. <laughs> In a more friendly and I'm compassionate way. I use the word friendly, compassionate. <laughs> Read with Joey. I'm looking at this. <laughs> oh, my God. So, Joey, you've been extremely fortunate, man. I mean, and I, I asked you to do some name dropping. And I'm glad you did, you know. <laughs> Boy, some powerful names, you know, people who it, really, uh, you know, more specifically, Jamaican music. Um, you really, you, yeah, you met a lot of a lot of folks along the way, Seriously. and you know, several of them have um, fallen off the cliff. Yeah, you know, yeah, you know, so, yeah, and you know, I mean, there's it's been such a gift because music, uh, as a professional musician, is not an e the easiest route to take as a profession, mm -hmm. but the experiences that you have within the journey, uh, things you cannot put a price on, you know, right. a a absolutely not, you know, even, you know, being able to play with like Derek Morgan a couple of years ago, that was amazing to me. And uh, of course, you know, when I had my recording studio from night from 2000 to 2009, and you and Eric were creating the Ska Bonanza shows, well, all the rehearsals, like a, a, a great many of them were done at my studio. So uh, there came- Again, you know, you can name drop. Uh, we had a lot face of people to Ken face too, with you know? Ken Booth rehearsing. Ken Booth, and Ken Booth and Strange Cole telling me the story about Arctic Bella. Yeah, go ahead. You know, I said, you know, you guys, because they were singing together in the lounge area for fun. I'm like, there they are just singing for fun harmonizing and so I'm hanging out and I said you know what's the story behind Artibella the you know and they said it was there was a travelogue television show in the 1960s on the BBC channel and the end credits was this Indian song playing during the credit roll and it went and so they took that melody of that Indian song and they wrote Artbella. <laughs> I thought I thought it was written by um, Stranger. Well, Stranger and Ken sang it. Right, but written but by like, Stranger. Yeah, I think it's Stranger. Yeah, but I'm saying they, he told me that's where it came from. The melody. Watch. Oh, the melody. I the see. melody of the song it was is. was upcycled from an Indian like sitar song or something on a BBC travelogue show that was on TV every week back then. <laughs> I'm like, okay. I see it again, right? <laughs> you know, the influences of uh, Jamaican music are just out of so many interesting places. Yeah, we, we can't even touch on that, Joy. It no, gave birth I mean, to hip hop. No, it's, we, we, we would need a dozen shows. Yeah, I, I kid I mean, you We had Alton Ellis Rears <laughs> there. Uh, you know, of course, Derek Morgan. Uh, Owen Gray, uh, mm -hmm. Ethiopian. Dennis Al Capone. Al Capone and Ethiopian. I don't think he, he rehearsed there, but he was there hanging with us, listening to the old jukebox. Yeah, Ethiopian yeah. took sick there. I remember that we had to take him to the hospital. I'm not sure if he rehearsed there, but he, he was there. Yeah, he was there hanging out with us. Yeah, know, so we had to know, take him to the hospital. I mean, right. Oh, man. You know, Alton Ellis' last mm -hmm. rehearsal for his very last show before he passed was there. Mm -hmm. uh, one. Uh, you guys brought P Pat Kelly in one day just to hang out. Uh, one day, Mikey Dredd came by to hang out and, you know, sign my album. <laughs> I mean, 
<laughs> I can't even, it's hard to expound upon like how mind blowing it is because they're all people that we idolize and whose music we cherish. And they're also gifted in a way that's, it is like if Nat King Cole came and hung out with you, it's that, it's that other, they're like uh, other entities, you know, mm -hmm. really. Mm -hmm. So we talk about the Jamaican connection. How about the Cuban connection? A Cuban connection. Well, and you, you can know, tie that in with the project that you presented. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the Cuban... Well, you're working on so many projects, but the Cuban yeah. one, not the Brazilian one yet. We're going to get there. Well, the Cuban one, you know, the Cuban one's interesting because, like I said, I had really learned a lot of aspects of Afro-Cuban and Latin jazz through Ramon Banda, who's famous for being in the Poncho Sanchez band and the Banda Brothers band and a fantastic timbales player, but also an incredible jazz drum kit player, you know, who played Joey DeFrancesco's trio and a lot of, a lot of great people. Um, so by the time I was, when I was about, mm, I had been playing guitar for some years, solely guitar, really. I wasn't really playing much bass from the time I was about 22 to 25 or something. I was studying guitar, maybe, you know, but anyway, till about, yeah. 1987 or 88. I never stopped studying the guitar or pursuing that instrument. But, uh, you know, what happened was a friend of mine gave me a record by Kachow. I had gone to New York. I had been on tour with Tupelo Chainsex and ran into a good friend of mine there who gave me a copy of Kachow, uh Descargas in Miniature Album. And I'd known Kachow. I had a, a record with him on it but I'd never heard his band and I'd never heard his band from the fifties. And I was like, Oh my God. When I heard that and the bass was like, uh, the, the guitar was put down, the bass was back in my hand and I needed to know like, how do I do that? You know? And, uh, at the same, right. A couple of years after that, like 1989, Mario Melendez opened up the King King. It had been an old Chinese restaurant that my friends would do weekly like uh, funk bar DJ nights at starting in 87, 88. I mean, and it was like one of the first real, it was the first small club bringing back funk and soul records. But they also let me come in and sit in as a DJ playing Latin records. And no one was playing vintage 50s and 60s Cuban and New Yorkian things in clubs yet and no one was even collecting it yet you know it was at a time when you you couldn't really no one cared about it the, the record vendors didn't care about it you know so uh mario melendez opened the king king and he put me in charge of the whole club as the musical director from 1989 to 1994 and uh i was put in charge i was tasked with booking bands and also creating, bringing band, people together to form regular weekly house groups like their Monday blues band and so forth. And we had Tuesdays open and I started an Afro-Cuban jam session night with the few people I knew that played Latin music and what ha like Artie Webb. And so what happened was once the night was going for four or five weeks, those guys, the word leaked out to all the other LA Latin and salsa musicians that that was the place to go where they could just jam together, not be 
confined to the arrangements, written arrangements and things of the salsa bands that they were, you know, uh, mm -hmm. were doing as their regular living. So they, they could go stretch out. And so that is where my boot camp really happened for me to learn how to play that music with definition and the stylistic aspects and Eddie Resto, who was is a bassist who was with all the greats since he was a teenager. He played with Machito uh, in the 70s, Eddie Char and Charlie Palmieri, Tito Puente, Celia Cruz. I mean, he, he, Ruben Blades, you know, Hector Laveau, he, he, he mentored me back then. And he really showed me, uh, he really, he really showed me what to do on the bass and he'd come in, he'd sit in and play and I'd watch him and, He'd come to my house and he'd teach me things. And so uh, that's how I developed into it. And, you know, that's, I went on to learn music right around the same time of formally how to write and arrange music for bands and how to listen to music on records and try and describe the parts so I could take a record I had and extract the parts by ear back on the paper to put it in the hands of musicians and play. It was like letting a genie out of a box or something, you know? Uh, it was fantastic. So, you know, it led me to go on by, oh, probably, I want to say, yeah, the late later 90s, like 97, I had a, I got, I made the friendship of Chico O'Farrell, who was, you know, a true genius. He was friends with Igor Stravinsky, for example, but he, was a writer and arranger for the Machito Orchestra. Uh, he wrote a first suite of uh, Afro-Cuban jazz suite for the Machito Orchestra featuring Charlie Parker in 1950 or so. But he mentored me uh, as a friend and gave me some great guidance whenever I would go to New York. And I came back and I created a, a big band with four trumpets, four trombones and five saxophones. And that's orchestra. Uh, <laughs> the proper like a palladium era 50s mambo orchestra modeled after tito puente machito tito rodriguez the big three of the palladium and wow. so that you know that that's what i did we played shows at the conga room and you know all, all kinds of stuff and so you know i i had some street cred at that point you know because i'd also worked with francisco aguabea who over the years who was one of the most important congueros of the 20th century up there with Mongo Santa Maria and Armando Peraza, um, you know, Carlos Vidal, uh, you know, I mean, he was one of the most important guys. He was one of the, he was one of the only people, I think, living in the U.S. who had been inducted to all of the various sects of the Santeria religion. He specialized in playing the religious ceremonies of the Aruban rooted Santeria. Uh, he was a deep man and a very loving friend. And so, uh, you know, all of this was schooling for me. And uh, it led me to then actually record with El Gran Feove in 1999, mm -hmm. who was like a, a prophetic Cuban jazz singer. Uh, he'd been part of a movement in Cuba going back into the 40s called feeling. It's uh, the, the word feeling is a phonetic spelling for feeling. And it was starting in the 40s and blossoming in the 50s, 
was a nucleus of musicians in Cuba, including like Bebo Valdez and, uh, you know, uh, Chico O'Farrell was part of it and uh, Umar Potwondo of, uh, you know, Buena Vista Social Club. Uh, they were all part of these small group of like very forward thinking musicians that were taking the influence of American post-war bebop jazz and the more dense harmonic aspects of it and the scat singing of Ella Fitzgerald and Dizzy Gillespie singers and things putting it into their Cuban, uh, the ideas, and also the crooning and the phrasing on mm. the ballads they would sing, like Billy Eckstein, like Sarah Vaughan. They, they were, it really shaped the bolero. So of the, what they were doing, and they were very advanced, and it was a very uh, cutting edge, and uh, I, would, I would dare to say uh, uh, provocative sound. It was kind of like uh, punk because people did not, the general populace didn't understand it. It was too advanced for its time. Mm -hmm. You know, it was highly sophisticated. And El Gran Cachao was part of this too. Uh, Cachao and El Gran Feove had a friendship going back to 1940. And then, so Feove came over to live in Mexico City in 1955 because he wasn't really getting much work because he was such a specialist you can hear him singing on, a, on that series called C Cuban Jam Session Records on the Pan Art label. They re-released re it as a box set last year with beautiful, like, in-depth liner notes and gorgeous repressings of the records. But, you know, what happened was a lot of Cubans came over to Mexico because uh, there was no racial barrier there like there was in Havana. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, there was... So that, uh, that's before... Castro took over. Before Castro, this mm. like, yeah. Right. So they were coming mm. over in the 50s and Feove made his way mm. over there in 1955 and he made two albums released on RCA Victor and it propelled him into a, like a stardom in film appearances and later on TV appearances and, you know, all kinds of great stuff. And what happened was like uh, he he became a guy who was always on variety shows in the 70s and more like a caricature of himself. You know, like he, was, he was more like a, a, a personality, if you will. His <clears throat> true, true gift wasn't shown the way it had been in his earlier career. And in 1979, he, he made his last album. He had gone back to Cuba. First time he'd visited there in almost 25 years. And, he made an album there. It was really good. And, uh, but after that, he didn't make an album until I found him 20 years later. Wow. And we made a record, and, and uh, he cited it as the best record he had ever made, and uh, which really, you know. Uh, Congratulations. Man. Means a lot. Means so much to me. That, of course. You know, I mean. So, is, expect, so is, that the, is that the present project that you're working on? That's a project that I've been it's been in the works for over 20 years. It's been on a back burner because Matt Dillon, the actor and film director, directed documentary, came with me, he filmed the recording sessions and began a documentary about this. And it, you know, other obligations of his gotten away for many years from finishing mm -hmm. it. And in that time, all these other people that had been in the feline movement came out of the woodwork to give interviews. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and also tell the story of the 
not just Feobe, but the movement of feeling music and also the uh, how the Cubans came, migrated over to Mexico and started a whole scene there. So the film finally got finished and premiered last September at the San Sebastian Film Festival in Spain. And it's now booked to show at the uh, next, uh, in, in September, at the Telluride Film Festival, which is one of the best film festivals there there are in that in that whole thing you know like mm -hmm. it's harder to get into than even con film festivals so at, at the present moment uh the negotiations are being made for distribution of both the album and the film but i didn't want to put the album out when, before the film was ready because that wouldn't have made sense right. you know so uh mm -hmm. That's the status of that, but I'm super psyched because we we got such rave reviews in the major pub publications like Variety and Billboard and all kinds of stuff for that San Sebastian Film Festival. So, you know, wonderful! Congratulations! Man. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're, we're looking at going mm -hmm. to Telluride in September and probably do a performance there, even though Feobe has passed away. Mm -hmm. We'll do like a tribute with right. guest singers and and the people on the album. That's the mm -hmm. plan. Yeah, fans are waving all over the world. Say hi to them while, while you say hi to the fans all over the world. I just want to remind fans all over the world and of course those in Los Angeles uh, that this is the 12th episode of the History of LA one-on-one session. And tonight's guest, if you haven't figured it out, is bassist, band leader, writer, producer, composer, music authority, none other than Joy Altuda of Jump with Joy. Joy, we need to do this Thank like you. weekly in order to catch up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but so uh, I think, is there anything else that you wanted to say about the uh, Cuban project? Because I have some questions to ask. No, no, no. We didn't, I, even, I, we didn't I, even talk I, about I've the formation. I've that. Maybe huh? I should, is my lighting good enough for you still? Because the sun's going down outside. I'm uh, good, man. I think I covered that. I mean, it takes a long yeah. time to explain all this. I would like to add, though, like, you know, in my whole course of Cuban studies, like learning it, I actually got to, you know, be in the company of Kachau on a lot of occasions, you know, have lunch with them, be at his rehearsals, recording sessions, shows. I mean, I mean, that's like a, a magical thing for me. And Chocolate mm -hmm. Arventeros, I must mention, was a very, very good friend of mine who had a career going back to Havana in the 40s. And he was with Arsenio Rodriguez's band when he was like 20 years old and uh, very important. He's like the mm -hmm. Louis Armstrong of, of Cuba. And we were very close friends, made a lot of rec like recordings and gigs together and uh he's in the film he's on the failed record and uh he was in the tropicana orchestra for seven years uh, in havana until he came out to new york in 57 and stayed he, and was in the machito orchestra for many years after that so uh I so i want to bring the, the, the discussion back to the place of your birth where you spent practically two-thirds of your life, Los Angeles, the great entertainment capital of the world. And I was wondering if you could tell us something about the skia scene during the 80s, 90s, for yeah. the benefit of our fans who are numerous. 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm. Hey everyone, by the way, I'm glad mm. everyone. I, I'm going to make that a two-part question to the formation of Jump with Joy because that's where most people know you from. Jump with yeah. Joy. Yeah, yeah, well, sure. I mean, this is all part of it. I mean, I think the first ska band I saw, well, definitely was when I was in Tupelo Jade Sex, and I think it was probably about '82. Uh, I, you know, probably about '82, '83. The singer of the band brought me to the On Club. And I saw the Untouchables, oh. and they were great. And it wow. was such a scene, and it was so vital. And it was, you know, scooters lined up across the whole front of the club, and you know, I mean, it, it was just so cool. And things like that. I, I guess they must have played there for for a while. I think they were a regular resident residents at yeah. the club, but like. That was a big deal for me. And you know, you know who the doorman was back then at the On Club? Lawrence Fishburne, the actor. Uh, who? Lawrence Fishburne. Some of these guys I don't know. So I, see, I came out. Oh, Lawrence I, Fishburne is a movie star for decades. Oh, a right. huge yeah. movie star, Larry Fishburne. Yeah. You know, I have to apologize yeah, no, to no, you but, and to the yeah. fans. I spent but, so much time listening to Scar Rocksteady and Reggae that I hardly know much of anything else oh yeah <laughs> especially since my arrival here in it oh yeah no of it's course just, I, it's just jamaican know. music yeah fortunately you know. and unfortunately but i mean so that was people, like I would know that. an amazing thing like he was he was pursuing an acting career and he, he's probably an academy award winner at this point but i mean mm. it's just like <laughs> really cool you know just fun fact there and so you know what's his uh, name again sir lawrence fishburne oh there you go yeah so you know uh I mean, if you go into an IMDb website, you're going to see like a whole 20 plus years of films that he's been in, 30 mm -hmm. years by now. But, uh, you know, uh, we had a lot of great times in L.A. And, you know, Fishbone was more of a ska band in their earlier days. They were very ska based in the early 80s. Uh, even though they put a real kind of their own spin on it. Mm -hmm. You know, they were much more uh, consistently like a ska band than than what they morphed into as they progressed as a band and more intricate in influence uh, arrangements and influences, you know. But uh, I think by what happened was I, I said I had been the musical director of the King King Club. Yes. And I had this, I was tasked with this responsibility of booking bands and creating house bands and the one night that was, there were two nights that were still not filled out for a long time. One was Sunday and one was Wednesday. And so, we just bring records of, of like Jamaican records, Latin records, soul records, this kind of thing and just play. And so, you know, I think it was Mario from the King King. He said, like, he heard me playing like Hey Bartender by Laura Lakin or something like this. You know, he heard me playing some of the blue beat style. And he said, that's the kind of sound you should put in there on a Wednesday night because no one's really doing that. And so we started Jump with Joey doing those type of blue beat songs and jump blues like Wynoni Harris, Louis Prima, Bull Moose Jackson you know, which was very early uh, an influence on what be later, some years later, became the Swing Revival in L.A. Mm -hmm. And it, here's what happened. And we played a few 
ska songs, like we played Bridgeview, and we played a Watermelon Man version of Baba Brooks' arrangement. And we played a few straight ska things, but we were more of a shuffle boogie band. And what I didn't kind of realize for some years later was that the songs we were playing of the American repertoire were the same songs they and artists they were playing on the sound systems in Jamaica before they became the sound men became producers. So it was kind of like a tribute band to the sound men in the in a, in that regards, you know. And we later we like we we actually began doing more and more and more ska music as as it led on and was it was there a, a demand for more scare oh yeah or the taste oh yeah no i mean really like people people loved both but you know more and more things happened well also when roland alfonso came to play with us we needed to add more ska repertoire so we could accommodate him so we did we prepared a uh, bill ungerman who was our sax player at the time prepared a bunch of of the music written music for the band to play of uh, things like El Pussycat, uh, El Pussycat and the, the Roland, the real Roland, you know, repertoire that everyone knows and loves and wanted to hear. So then we had all this new music for us to play from there on in. And, and we wrote originals. Uh, of course, like, let's talk about El Diablo Ska, uh, because this is also one of the first things we did. And, um, you know, I had, saw this photograph of Betty Page wearing this devil's costume. And I thought, you know, that would be a super cool album cover. Like in the 50s, they would make an album that had a cover that had something to do with the name of the song on the album. So this the El Diablo Cigar was backwards engineered. I found that picture. I licensed it from the photographer to use on a cover and I wrote a song that I named El Diablo Ska. And it became, and I made the 45 and it became probably the most requested and loved song of the whole repertoire. <laughs> but it, it came out of an idea from a photograph. Wow. So Joe, so, so, I think what I should ask is what you haven't done and what not what you have done since it seemed as if you've well, done practically everything at this particular point in time. <laughs> but yeah. I, I want to talk about your Brazil project. Great. And let me just turn the light on a little. So I can yeah, I thought you was going to ask the sun to stand still until we complete the... Um... Okay, yeah, let's, let there be light. Let's shed some light on this subject. Yeah, you, you can't make the sun stand still. Eh? What uh, I haven't... You, you, you used to do that when you were in LA. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what make I haven't done yet, I mean, okay. you know, for the past... What happened with me was uh, in 2009, I was asked to play in Sir George's band for three nights at the Hollywood Bowl. Sir George, you might know of him from the movie The Life Aquatic. Three nights. And singing David Bowie songs in Portuguese. He's a big star in, in Brazil. So I was his bassist. So And Mike Boido from Jump With Joey was his pianist and the drummer is Eric Bobo of Cypress Hill and the Beastie Boys. His father was Willie Bobo and he was a long time friend of mine. He was in my Latin band, one of my first Latin band in before the King came, you know. Anyways, uh, we all came together to have a little group, like five piece group with Sir George and his musical director, Precinho, who's like uh, considered in his Wikipedia page, they call him the Mozart Samba. He's a prodigy, 
anyways. We had a five-piece band backed by an 80-piece Hollywood Bull Orchestra with samba dancers, fireworks, capoeira dancers, uh, and the batucada drummers, the whole, the whole thing. And Bebel Gilberto also shared the bill that night for three nights. So this was a big, big thing for me. Of course. Uh, it brought me more in. I'd always loved Brazilian music, but I'd never really focused on knowing mm -hmm. how to play it. I liked the bossa nova and things. But anyways, it led me into more work with Mario Caldado, who's a famous producer and engineer of a lot of things like the Beastie Boys, Beck, and Bjork, uh, you know, a lot of early hip hop things like Bust a Move, for example, you know, and, uh, and uh, Tone Loke and such. But anyways, uh, he's worked with a lot of Brazilians and he facilitated this because he's friends with Sir George. And I went several years later with Mario as part of a team to create a song for Coca-Cola in Rio de Janeiro for the World Cup in 2013. And, and I already met a bunch of Brazilian artists who had come up to LA in the past to work with Mario Caldado. So when I got there, it was like I had home, away from all home. these friends already and they started introducing me to the gang. And, every, and then I just continued visiting there. I visited there 10 more times since. <laughs> And each time I keep meeting more and more people and I've had the great fortune of meeting like the greats of their, of the greats. I mean, of the Tropicalia movement, uh, Caetano Veloso, Gilberto Gil, Gal Costa, you know, uh, Novos Baianos took me in like family. I mean, it's been just such an incredible, incredible journey. And, uh, you know, along with a whole lot of other, you know, luminaries of mm -hmm. Brazilian music, old and young, you know, um, it's been just mind blowing. And so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Novos Baianos is a very famous band of Brazil to considered to be like a, a national treasure. You know, they've been around since 1967 and uh, they've, Rolling Stone has cited one of their albums, their second album, as being the most one of the most important albums of Brazil music history. And so uh, the band hadn't been back together with all original members in 19 years. And four years ago, I was down there and I knew a, knew a couple of the members of the band were friends of mine. And so they all got back together for a reunion tour that was lasted about a year on and off in different states of Brazil. And, um, you know, they took me in like part of the family and it was a, a supreme honor because this band was something that, you know, during the height of the military dictatorship in Brazil, they gave a massive youth like hope of like something better. You know, I mean, they're so deeply revered for their lifestyle and the, their thoughts and their music, I mean, incredibly wonderful and I, I saw that there weren't any hardly anyone in the states knows of Novos Baianos and they were mentored by Joao Gilberto uh, they were the first band they started as a psych rock band and Joao Gilberto got them to infuse uh, the culture of Brazilian music of the some of the instruments and rhythms and 
and he showed them songs that they then recorded that were older songs of samba and things, and they put it together with rock. It was the first time it had ever been done and highly inventive. So, you know, uh, I got to be with them in 2016 and saw, I went to Bahia with them. I went to Recife with them and I saw several of their shows in Rio. And I saw that like, they don't have, there's no information about them in English. And so I decided, I approached Wax Poetics magazine to, to write an article about Novos Bayanos in English from the perspective of someone who's in, like an American person uh, telling the story of them through my eyes and through what they've told me about their own history. <laughs> And also about uh, you know have, having read as much Portuguese articles and translated them and and such to learn, and and also read their book that's written in Portuguese a, a couple times and understanding about sixty percent of it because I study Portuguese but still it's a I'm a work in progress but anyway, I I saw that like the my I it was surreal how I came to know these people it was a manifestation I when I. I was shown this video by Sir George on YouTube called Novos Bayanos Football Club. It's a, it's a TV documentary about them from 1972. And I was just drawn in like, who are these people? And where are they now? And, you know, I've got to find these people. These are like my people. I got to find them. And it, it was like I, I stated my intention. And, and this couple of years later, there I was on a plane with them, flying from Rio wow. to Bahia for the first time they ever played together live in an, from, in front of an audience in almost mm -hmm. 20 years. And so, uh, I Interesting. My, so uh, you have, I noticed you have lost your taste for Skia and Dub because uh, your latest project. Yes, uh -huh. yes, so, exactly. Let's like, talk about this. Fast forward, your latest project. Yes, because this You is have abandoned Skia and Dub. Yes, because this is, King Toby and yes, this is how it all Take ties it from together. There. <laughs> because, you know, some of you might know of Tom Zay. He's a genius, okay? Mm -hmm. He's been making records since the 60s. David Byrne had kind of, when David Byrne discovered Tom Zay, he showed him to the rest of the world and started compiling best of CDs and producing new music by him in the early 90s. And, you know, he was really shown to us. And I saw that like my, through my, my role in my friendship with Novos Bayanos, my part in the story was to show them to the English speaking audience. And <laughs> what I found out was that Tom Zay introduced the two main songwriters of that band to each other. And Tom Zay was also very close with João Gilberto. As, okay, so it all, there's all this stuff that's all in, blog series on on my dot com okay so i ended up interviewing several of novos bayanos about that article and i got to interview tom zay through the through the internet and we became consistent like pen pals okay and i approached him uh, about a year ago and said you know i really love this song of yours ababa and i think it would make a great ska version would you consider making this song with me? And he said, well, what, what is ska? You know? And so I 
I sent him an email with a short dissertation of giving him context of what the ska music was for Jamaica and the independence and everything. And I gave him a few YouTube videos of like Scatolites and the Wailing Wailers and things. And he liked it. And so he recorded his voice with his guitar player in his home and sent me the files. And so I took that. And I sent it to Oliver Charles, who put the drums on it. Mm -hmm. And Roger Rivas put the keys on it. I, I did the bass and the guitar. And then we had Artie Webb on flute, who's uh, one of the guys from the King King Latin band and Ray Barreto's band, Tito Puente's band. He, he's an iconic flute player. And and then, you know, one of the members of Novos Bianos, their bass player, Daji, he sang in the chorus. My friend Kassin, who's a big, big producer down there, he sang in the chorus. And uh, Victor Rice did the mix. And so we did a version of this because it made such sense as a ska tune in its melody and its harmonic chord progression. It made such, it was just straight up no brainer that this is going to be a great ska. And so we collaborated remotely all of us uh, Victor Rice lives in Brazil for 20 years you know mm -hmm. and so Victor Rice did an insanely good mix but we also did a version at, in Steffers as a right. dub and Victor's a dub master and so what we did he uh, like we made this single it's coming out on April 7th and this is what I've been alluding to if you follow my Instagram or you watch my Facebook feed I'm constantly mentioning Novos Bianos and telling the story in blogging and, and things like uh, uh, Tom Zay. And there's DJ Miss Wild. You know what I'm talking about. Como vai? <laughs> it's, you know, she's in Sao Paulo. And, uh, you know. So the release date for the, um, the release date for the, the Tom Zay, right? I'm trying to pronounce his name. Still struggling Tom with it. It's those two letters. So the release date is, uh, the copy you sent me is advanced. Yes. Is it the same one? It drops on April 7th. Officially okay. April 7th. Officially on April 7th. And here's what goes on. Uh, I'm interested oh, in This here. is going on like just the digital version through a uh, company called Avocadio. Like avocado, but avocadio.com. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's linked to Bandcamp. It'll be on all the streaming platforms and Apple Music and such. And then I'm going to, I have an interview on my YouTube channel. If you go to Jump With Joey Altruda in YouTube, if you search that, you're going to find my channel. There's going to be an interview coming out with Victor Rice and it, like a two-hour interview, one-on-one -on -one of us kind of asking each other questions about each other and our story, plus an interview with Roger Rivas. But here's the real kicker as well. Victor Rice made four other alternate dub versions of the Ska and the Steppers in videos of him doing the dub live at the controls. And I'm gonna be dripping these out one at a time on the Jump With Joey Altruda YouTube channel as- For promotion, right? For promotion of purpose. Yeah, in the next couple months, I'm just gonna keep dripping them out. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you like vinyl, and I know a lot of you want records. That was going to be my next question. Is okay. it going to be? <laughs> I beat you to the punchline there. Uh, <laughs> we're going to make a special limited edition record of this, mm -hmm. and it's going to uh, it's going to be put out 
Well, I, I built a wait list that you can go to. If you go to joeyaltruda.com forward slash Tom, you can get on a wait list. And what happens is one, it's like you'd like a thousand people, enough to make it worth manufacturing. You get an email from me that says we're ready to go. And then it's a pre-sale and we'll manufacture it and have it mailed out to you. So joeyaltruda.com forward slash Tom. If you speak Spanish, joeyaltruda.com forward slash Tom Espanol. If you're in Brazil, joeyaltruda.com forward slash Tom Brasil with an S. So uh, we're just gonna, we're gonna make magic here. And it's gonna be a really great thing with probably colored vinyl with a nice cardboard cover, limited edition art piece, you know. So, I mean, I'm over the moon because yeah, Tom I, I, I could is, tell is a, a The genius. promotion is going very well so far. I heard it, I, I heard it debut on some other radio stations. Oh, yeah. Yesterday, yeah, yeah. Chuck Foster played it already. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, mean, I think that guy, Junior Francis, burst it too. Junior Francis? Yeah, I heard about it. And also, uh, uh, what's mm. the, the guy's name that comes on before you at the station? Um, Big Red. Big Red played it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, uh, you know, but for me, I mean, it's such a supreme honor to now be able to collaborate with Tom Zay. I mean, I mean, I can't ask for much more to make me happy in this life. No, I, I kid you not. No, you can't you know? ask for more. And, you know, I, and, you know, the intention here is to really do my best to make this a success so mm -hmm. that I can make... But it's already a success. Yes, thank you. Was it a very costly project? No, it wasn't. I mean, oh. it's not, I mean, it is in the realm of like, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know what I mean? Not in the realm well, I mean, of because you, you, some heavyweight names you mentioned. Yeah, but you know, uh, yeah, I mean, it wasn't terribly cost heavy. It was still, it was still very cost effective to do it. So because know. it's just a single, right? Yeah. Just, it's not an album. Yeah. No, but you know, the bigger profit comes from selling the vinyl. You know, oh, and the objective mm. is also that we will sell more than a thousand. That would do two, three, four thousand of these. And that's where some really good residuals will come from for everybody. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, I really have a vision of doing this with other great Brazilian artists and mixing the Jamaican flavor mm -hmm. with some of the... Uh, some of the other people like a, make a, what I call tropiscalia, you know. Because that bridge has been gapped. You know, that bridge. Uh, yeah. It, yeah, especially with traditional skia. I will tell you something. Uh, Brazilian. Mm -hmm. uh, we know Brazil is a uh, big on reggae. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. From you coast know the, to coast. Yes. And, you know, uh, what, uh, David Hilliard just sent me his new album, uh, and it's phenomenal and there's a lot of great uh versions of jamaican flavor versions of brazilian songs on there and so it's nice to see like yeah like he and he's doing it and he's doing it so well you know the beautiful way the blend the balance of the two things it's mm -hmm. just really good so he must be bilingual I don't know. Someone sang on. Someone sang on it in Portuguese on one of the songs. They did a very good job. So, mm -hmm. you're right. Know. 
So tell us, uh, did we talk any about the formation of Jump With Joy? Because that's when I probably came to town. Oh, yeah, because, yeah, we okay. did. We, every Wednesday night, like like I said, my, my guy who owns the club said, we need a band to play every Wednesday night. And he tasked me with putting together a band. And we put together a band that played like Blue Beat and Jump Swing and things. And I initiated Willie McNeil was the doorman at the club at the time. And uh, he had been in The Untouchables. He had been with me in Tupelo Chainsex. He had been in Joe Strummer's band. Uh, you know, he, he'd been around a long time. And so, and I knew he played Scalwell, so I initiated him and a, a classmate of mine named J.P. Monchet to play the piano before Mike Boido joined. And uh, my friend Albert Balderas, who played trumpet, who I played jazz music with. And, uh, Willie got uh, a couple of the guys that had played, I think, in the Untouchables with him, which were the, the Unity Horns. I, Timothy, and Will Donato were our first trombone and saxophone players in Jump with Joey. If you remember the Unity Horns, they used to play a, yes, on I everybody's know. gig, right? <laughs> yes. That was it. And, and mm. my friend Jason Goodman played the guitar. So... And then, you know, personnel shifted and changed throughout mm -hmm. as the years went on, like a lot of bands. And uh, But, you know, we stayed together for 10 years, four CDs, three Japanese tours, an East Coast tour, you know, uh, three albums that came out, out as well on Ryko Disc from the Japanese stuff. And, uh, you know. So many great friends are here. I'd like to say hi to Jamal Tarkington. Mm -hmm. wow. he's, he's from uh, Sacramento area? No, he's from uh, uh, Reno. Oh, that's why I'm from Sacramento. I thought he's walking this uh, Kaiser Soze, the band Kaiser Soze. Yes, I'm familiar with Jamal. Yes, mm -hmm. you are. Uh, of course. I, I thought it, I, I, Sacramento. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. Okay. Yes, sir. I wanted... Um, Eric wanted to ask you about that set at the Ellery Theater that you put together. Uh, it's Rocksteady, Scan Rocksteady Bonanza. We may even have a poster here. Was this the, wait, is this the- The one we've been using for promotion. We've been getting a lot of feedback and questions. The, the, the lineup was massive. It was the first time I, I, I met and worked with some of those bands. Oh, you mean, when, wait a minute. I'm thinking of the Reggae Nucleus show that I did at the El Rey, no? Or... Yes, uh -huh. they, they, I think the name was Scarrack Steady Bonanza. It was, was in 2005. This is the one when Ken Lazarus sang in the Wailing Souls? Well, we did so many shows, but there was one particular one with, I think, was C Spot on it, Eric? Yeah. I think, oh, that, yeah, C Spot. Um... Gee, Eric's going to have to text you, text you and tell you who was on the show. <laughs> I, <laughs> I know that I played, and I think it was around. Yeah, there were some amazing ones there. Yeah. Oh, was this the year that I that you gave me the award? Or that was 2008? Right, no. right there. Here. C-Spot. Agrolites. All in terms. Uh, we, we can't put this group together again. They, they, they're so costly. Oh, uh, yeah. And grown outside of our budget, but it was massive, massive night, man. Joyal Shoulders, classic rhythm, C spot, and you featured members of Jump with Joy, the Allentons, and if you can see them here, Agrolites. 
yeah, March the fifth, two thousand and five. Oh yeah, that was a massive show. I yeah, mean, man, larger than life, man. <laughs> that was all day long, and I think that that may have been the night you gave me the award. Which was you know, the, when it comes to memory, though, that's not my department. For the Lifetime Achievement Award for the Preservation of Jamaican Music, which yes, happens sir. to be... Guess, uh, what, the, it's, it's a group effort, me and Eric. You and Eric, yes. You had given this award to Lloyd Nibb, you'd given it to Elton Ellis. Who else did you give this to? I can't remember those things, Joy. I barely remember what uh, they did. Yeah, anyways, I was the only non-Jamaican to actually receive that award. And it's the only award I've ever received in my entire life so far. And so oh. at, eight, at eight, oh, I was 42. So that would have been 2005. Yeah, it, mm -hmm. you know. So I, I, you should have called it like a half a lifetime award, achievement award. Because oh. I was it's kind of sad that you, no one acknowledged <laughs> you. Well, I, I'm glad we did. Mm -hmm. Oh man! But the credit should so go to, to Eric Cola. Mm -hmm. Oh man, he's a visionary. You guys visionary mean so much to me, mm -hmm. honestly. You know that was a massive show, and mm -hmm. we did one for the Reggae Nucleus magazine at yes at El Rey, which I put together with uh, I Timothy was in the band, mm -hmm. Santa Davis was in the band, um, and so and so was Anthony Wilson played the guitar, who's been with Irene, uh, not Irene, but Diana Krall's band since the late 90s. He's one of the best jazz guitarists in the world. Ken Lazarus sang, yes. Wailing Souls sang. Mm, oh, I remember, okay. Wow. Yes. You know? <laughs> <That> was a... <laughs> I mean, yeah, that was a big one. It was a big one. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Uh -huh. uh, here's a question we have for you, uh, is to talk a little bit about the Burn Jazz Session. Oh, the Buru Jazz Sessions, right? Because Ken Stewart. Are you, right? Yeah, the Buru Jazz Sessions. The Ken, I'm, glad, I'm glad you brought that up, Ken. You mentioned that earlier, and I, I didn't have t a chance to really, you know, expound upon that. In, in 2004, or 2000, around 2004, I brought together a group in the studios. You remember all these dates, Joe? <laughs> oh, yeah, because, I, yeah, there were significant things that happened happened in my life that were like markers for me that's why i remember those specific years you know but and uh, you probably do interview every day <laughs> well lately i've been doing a lot yesterday i did three <laughs> okay um <laughs> and you know, i brought together a group in my recording studio in 2004 and i called it the buru jazz ensemble and it contained uh lloyd nibs on the drums Mike Boydo on the piano, me on oh, the Oh, Lloyd Nibbs from Skacking. Satellites, wow. Lloyd Nibbs. Mm. Mike Boydo from Jump With Joey on the piano, myself on bass, Ernest Wranglin on the guitar, Jack Costanzo on the percussion, on the congas, okay? Mr. Bongo, okay? This guy was in Nat King Cole Trio. Uh, he was in Stan Kenton's band. He, he was... He's just iconic. He was Marlon Brando's conga teacher in the 50s. This guy is just one of the best percussionists who ever lived. And then our horn section had Chocolate Armenteros, I mentioned on the trumpet, and Plas Johnson on the sax, who, uh, you know, most famous for being in the Wrecking Crew and playing the Pink Panther theme with Amory Mancini and... Uh, David Rollicky played trombone on a few things and Derek Davis played alto and 
you know, some most of it was two horns, but some of it had five horns, including Sal Cracciolo from Pancho Sanchez on the second trumpet. And uh, it's phenomenal. And it's, you know, when I record it, I record it with the idea of just at least for posterity reasons only, bring these people together right now and make this album. I, you know, and really for me, like, it, I didn't really have a, a strategy of how I would release it. And at the time, it was at the height of file sharing. So I, I didn't want to, like, make a a CD that I made a self-pressed CD because as soon as one person bought it, everyone could file share it. You know, it was a problem with all the major labels and indie labels. So I've sat on that this long. And so <laughs> what I'm actually planning on doing is now I'm waiting for the Feove Cuban album to come out and really gain some momentum in the press and that from doing that because it's such a highly visible project that you know you that i think maybe either i'm going to find a good distribution deal for the buru jazz ensemble because it's an entire album or uh either that or press it myself and do like i doing in this circumstance which is you know with tom zay you know mm -hmm. put it out digitally get it circulating globally on all platforms and make a wait list for people then to, you know, uh, I'll amass enough people to then uh, do pre-order and manufacture it for, you know, that's the mode, I think. I, it's it's better well, even than crowdfunding for me. It's same as though all your, all your projects are for posterity, don't you? I mean, they all, they yeah, are. Yeah, I, I kid you not. Mm -hmm. you know, no, not. It's not self-praise, really and truly. You I didn't know, even know you. I didn't even know you work with Gibbs Nibs. <laughs> oh, I work with Lloyd Nibs uh, on another thing called uh, Buru Jazz Ensemble in nineteen ninety-two mm -hmm. or so, ninety-three. We did a couple songs. One came out on a Steady Beat compilation, and one came out on a compilation out of France called Pure. And uh, there's some good stuff, and that was my first affiliation with Lloyd Nibs. You know, and so we became very good friends. And mm -hmm. what an incredible human being, you know. Wow. And such an amazing drummer. One of the, you know, and the sharpest man in the Scatolites. Like he could tell you dates and names and stories. And I mean, this guy was just phenomenal, you know. So it was a great honor. And it was the second album I did with, with uh, Ernest Wranglin. And it, it features both of them prominently, you know. We haven't we haven't even talked much or scratched the surface of your work with Ernest Wrangling because I know you work with him extensively. We're yeah. gonna have to do this again. <laughs> yeah, well I'll give you one quick story when I on I, my I bet you have dozens. <laughs> I do. On my thirty third birthday I played in New York. I went there to play a movie premiere party, which paid a lot of money. So I was able to fly Ernest Wranglin up from Jamaica to do this and uh, and a couple other gigs because this gig played paid everyone so well that I could book a couple other gigs that didn't pay that well but played mm -hmm. decent enough you know and so he came up without a guitar and he and I said where's your guitar and he said well you know I called George Benson a few days ago because I really want to buy an Ibanez, George Benson model guitar. And I called up George Whoa. Benson because we're friends. And 
I want to get a wholesale guitar from him. So, you know, he's going to, you know, he's going to bring one over. No, no name dropping, just telling no. you plain and straight. Yeah. And so like, here we are during the afternoon at the sound check setting up and a Lincoln town car pulls up outside. I was outside hanging out smoking or something. And, uh, I see the Lincoln Town Car pull up and out of the back door opens. George Benson comes out with a guitar case <laughs> and he comes in and he opens the guitar case up and he says to Wranglin, look, you, you, you called me up with such a short notice that I couldn't actually go get one from the factory. So I'm just going to give you my personal one because they'll just give me another one. And so it was like George Benson gave his personal guitar to Ernest, Ernest Rankin as a gift. And Ernest <laughs> thought he was just, he was going to get a good price, a wholesale price. <laughs> like, and he was thrilled. And George Benson <laughs> hung out with us for about an hour, just hanging out. And it was, it was so good. You know, and speaking of wrangling, he doesn't get the credit that he so rightly deserved. No. But, and, and that could be said about a million musicians, no, you know, you know, including yourself. He didn't, well, mm. thank you for putting me in that same box. I mean, it's a great yeah. honor. I mean, Ernest Wrangland didn't want the credit initially because he played in hotels at highly coveted gigs in Jamaica. And he did not want people to know he was making ska music because it was music of roughnecks. Mm -hmm. And he was afraid it would jeopardize his, his employment, his job, you know, that he would jeopardize this. So he, a lot of his music went out uh, without his name on it, but he was Baba Brooks Orchestra. He was the upright bass player of Baba Brooks and the arranger. He was the electric bassist and the arranger of all the Prince Buster music for the majority of the golden era of You're Prince kidding. Buster. And he- So that's and, a closely guarded secret, all these things I didn't know. And he also produced the, um, the majority of the early Studio One music uh, he was in charge of this of the production. Okay, uh, all Whalers records, all of that. That was Ernest Wranglin's genius, you know. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, a lot because he didn't want to jeopardize his, his job security at the big hotels. Um, but you know, going back to what I was saying about that show when, like, when when Benson came. The same week was my 33rd birthday, and we played a show on my birthday at Windows on the World at the very top of the World Trade Center. Wow. Yeah. The highest point in New York City, the highest building at the top. Yeah, and it's mm. been gone for 20 solid years now. And so I have that memory. I even have the receipt. I'm going to show you something. Hang on. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let me use this opportunity to remind uh, viewers that this is the 12th episode of the History of Eleskia one-on-one session um, in conversation tonight with uh, bassist, band leader, writer, producer, singer, composer, music authority, Joy Altruda of Jump With Joy. And I just, just not even, I, I just even, haven't even touched on the surface of the things that Joy has done and accomplished over the years. Okay. Uh, I also want to remind the viewers that uh, we have some magnificent guests uh, coming up on Sunday, April the 11th, Rhoda Decker of the um, Body Snatcher. And I just, I'm just fascinated with this um, stage name that will be a special show on, at 1 p.m. on Sunday, April the 11th. The King of Scar, Derek Morgan, has confirmed his anxious to talk with us. It'll be on Sunday, 
April the 25th, his anxiety is burning. His birthday show is coming up next week. And on Thursday, not to leave out last, but definitely not the least, Thursday, May the 6th, Vernon Maytones, the musical migrant from Jamaica, the Maytones. His big song, Money Worries, is uh, one of the biggest selling reggae movie soundtrack rockers still doing magnificently well he now lives in montreal and will be joining us on may the 6th is a thursday waiting for joy to come back joy i thought you was there and you disappeared yeah so once again we want to thank you all for taking the time out of your busy what's this a thursday night schedule to join us in the history of la yeah and you should go to the website history of la yeah and check out some of the previous interviews. Well, I, producer, I thought I had it here. Producer Eric Cole, this is his dream, and I constantly have to give him credit every step of the way. Thank this you, is Eric. Really, yeah, man. We love give you. Joy. <laughs> we were the first ones to give joy. <laughs> give joy a trophy. <laughs> you know, I thought I had it here in a folder, but it's in the wrong folder. But it was. I still have the actual receipt yeah. mm -hmm. of Ernest Wrangling from my birthday, and it says. It's got the $300 I paid him for the gig and his signature. And it says Windows on the World gig wow. with my birthday on it. <laughs> nice, I mean, nice. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> yes. Um, may I just plug my record one more time? Oh, yes. So that's the whole. Right. So let me, let me, I just want to ask you about the reissues. If you plan to do any reissues with Jump with Joy and some of the other stuff that you have. And then you can tie that in oh, with sure. your. Um, present project actually you know uh, i get so many requests so frequently these days of jump with joey and the fact that you know the rec the music is not on streaming platforms so it's and what really that something that i'm planning on uh discussing with willie mcneil and uh getting it out in a digital format and also in a tangible long playing copy which has never existed for any of the three albums you know we released three different 45s as jump with joey from the different albums so it's time you know mm -hmm. it's time and also in that era uh vinyl was at an all-time low i mean when i made el diablo ska 45 it was so difficult to sell it because everyone would keep saying oh, i don't have a record player anymore and now everybody wants records again. Amen. So, you know <laughs> what goes around comes around. I guess Didn't so. Bob right? Honestly, I think Bob said that. <laughs> yeah. So you know now I'm actually re re working on creating an email list as big as I can through JoeyAltruda.com. If you go there and opt in, you get the free like nine song mega mix of songs that I've done in the past mm -hmm. with different people. Um, there's blogs there that tell my story that I continually make and also I'm making expanding the list of really the idea is to be able to make those very special edition private pressing out like vinyl records for people so um, you know oh yeah Ted Morris two-tone Ted says I need to mention that my label when I made El Diablo Ska was the first Hepcat 45. I produced their very first single. You're kidding. When they were yeah. 19 years old and they came over to my house and we had the sleeves printed separately that Greg Narvis drew and we took each record out from 
the plain white sleeve and put them into the picture sleeve in my living room. Oh yeah, it was a big deal. And you know, those were on the jukebox at the King King, you know. And so so you, now, you have been an institution here in California. Well, either that or I've been put in an institution. I can't remember what. <laughs> I came out of the institution but... and then they made me in an institution. Yeah, um, yeah right. It's yeah. so fun <laughs> to be here. I would love to make mm. a return mm. appearance because right. like, you know, we did cocktails with Joey in the mid nineties as part of the whole lounge revival. Mm -hmm. That's a whole other story for another time. Yes, you know, sir. Um, so for clarity now, uh, we'll, we'll be seeing reissues upon reissues in the weeks ahead or oh, that's too close okay months ahead. yeah you know good things take time to facilitate right you know uh, you're not well, yeah, bob uh you're not listening to bob marley me <laughs> yeah oh. bob marley said man you know life is short gotta get it done now even well, if he has to work around the clock well yeah i've been practically it. doing <laughs> that myself uh <laughs> you know i understand gotta get it done now sir you know, it's, no it's, it's easier when you have a pressing plant of your own called Tough Gong, you know. Of you course, know of I mean? course. But a lot of it is vision, though. You know, he had a vision. I guess yeah. he must, uh, I'm, I'm speculating that he had a vision that he oh, was going to sure. be here too long. It, so you have to get everything done. Everything had to yeah. be perfect. I mean, work around the clock. Sure. You know, to sleep is a chance to die. Just keep working. To sleep is a chance to die. Let's get to work. To sleep is a chance to die. I'll remember that, you know. Um, <laughs> no, I, I'm not encouraging that, Joey. <laughs> no, no. Uh, we've got plenty of great years to come and things yes. to create and things to reissue and things to issue for the mm -hmm. first time that mm -hmm. haven't yet seen the light of day that are in right. the vault, you know, mm -hmm. so. Uh, yes, not benefiting anyone um, when they're in the vault. Yeah. So really and truly, from what I've seen, the response, the anxiety is really and truly building, building and building a momentum, building for you to go to the vault and bring this yep. stuff, let them see the, the, you know, the, 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 the yeah. light of day. You guys can all help who are watching by, you know, spreading out. The oh, yeah, that's what the people have been saying that. Yeah, you know, oh, post yes, yes, yes. jumpwithjoey.com. A lot of people have this post Yeah, man. Get people to, on. A ready jump to support you. With, yeah, jump mm -hmm. with Joey Altruda mm -hmm. Facebook page, like, comment, share, subscribe. Yes, I mean, There's the fan page. There's the Jump With Joey Altruda mm -hmm. YouTube page that I'm mm -hmm. launching. Like I said, it's going to have all the dub versions, the videos that of Victor Rice and uh, interview series and things. Plus, you know, go to joeyaltruda.com forward slash Tom to get on the mm -hmm. wait list for that Tom Zay 45. And avocadio.com is where it's going to be for sale starting on the 7th. This is a big mm -hmm. deal for me. I've never made a piece of music like this yet until right. just now. Okay. Yes, so, congratulations. You know, mm -hmm. It's a whole new, it's a whole like a 2.0 up a level up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Joy, we've arrived at our destination. Okay. Uh -huh. Any parting words to your fans? Numerous? Uh, I just love and appreciate you all so much. And it's more, it's, you know, I can't even say the fans, they're family, you know, so many people mm -hmm. here I've been so close with you know, for so many years through this community of people who have such great love for each other mm -hmm. and what we come together with the mutual love mm -hmm. for. It, mm -hmm. It's incredible. Thank you, everybody who's commented. Uh, you see me squinting because I, I, I'm trying to read it all. And, you know, uh, 
Mm. And you know, quite frankly, I don't think you could have connected with so many people if you hadn't lived in Los Angeles. So, oh, no. Uh, not right. at all. I, oh, okay. They, all right. Not okay. at all. And you stay consistent. I mean, honestly, you know, if you stay in one place long enough, you, you can't really get much accomplished if you don't, like, grow where you're planted. If you're, like, really, you must stay consistent in what you're doing and stay in a place long enough to gain traction in what you're doing, you know? Yes. Sir. I'd like to say hi to Buddy Jay Kiefer, who's been on here watching, too. He's from Portland. Buddy Jay's Jamaican you know, jazz ensemble. Uh, Oliver Charles had come up to where I live uh, on a road trip with his wife and they got married a couple of years ago. And a Buddy Jay brought his band members up here and we blew the roof off of this little town playing the repertoire of Crucial Rhythms and Jump With Joey here for this little town that never heard traditional ska live before. I mean, it, thank you, buddy, for facilitating that. I mean, it was so much fun. So, Joey, I'm inclined to believe that you're done with Los Angeles. Uh, but I don't think Los Angeles is done with you. I think you're planting roots when there. They, what you're when saying. Google comes out with the flying car, I'll move back. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> All right. I want to thank you for your time. Thank you, Junior. And thank it's you. It's been Eric. absolutely I wonderful. respect you both. Yes, and sir. Ciao mm -hmm. for now. See you on the flip side. Yes, indeed, sir. All mm -hmm. right. And this has night, been uh, the 12th episode of the History of Eleskia one-on-one session with the great uh, bassist, band leader, writer, producer, singer, and bassist, Jump With Joy. want to say thanks to my producer, our producer and friend, Eric Kohler. And the next three exciting guests that we have lined up on Sunday, April the 11th, Rhoda Dacca of the Body Snatcher. At the, it's a special and she'll be on at 1 o'clock Los Angeles time, the Pacific time, because she's in the United Kingdom. And in the middle on Sunday, April the 25th, we have the King of Scare, Derek Morgan. And last but not least, on the 6th of May, Vernon Mayton of the highly respected Maytons. He's living presently in Montreal, Canada. Adios, Joey. Adios, fans. Mm. Adios, viewers. Muito obrigado, querida. Ciao. The multilingual, <laughs> multi-instrumental, the man who has done everything magnificently well, Joel Trude. Thanks and much love. Thank you. Thanks so much, everyone. Good night. Good night.